really came to understand is the value of sports content. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of the Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. But today I'm going to be doing that solo. I'm Tom Richardson, because my co-host, Joe Favrito, is gallivanting around Las Vegas for Super Bowl weekend. And he's been delivering podcasts uh, to our producer, Mike, behind the scenes, seemingly, Mike, about every hour or two at this point, along with Scott and LJ. So uh, I know they've been hustling out there. It should be a good uh, experience for those who want to live vicariously. I'm not in Las Vegas, so I will listen to some of those pods. But I'm happy to be doing this uh, show solo because I happen to have had the privilege of meeting today's guest, a wonderful guy whose name is familiar to many in the sports industry because of what he's been up to, both with his current job and his uh, last notable job in the media space. Um, we're talking about Andy Mitchell, and Andy is currently the CEO, managing director of Seria USA, but he's also known as a longtime executive from Meta and Facebook, a 10-year-plus executive, I believe, and for the old-timers listening, he was an OG in digital media going back to the 90s at CNN, where he, I think he started his career at CNN for, did about 15 years there in the era of Web 1 and then getting all the way to the beginning of Web 2 when he jumped headlong into Web 2 when he went to Facebook. So, Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks. Uh, great to be here, Tom. Super excited and I'm ready for a lively conversation. <laughs> great. Let's make it lively. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that your career has mirrored the development of the the, the creation of an advancement of the digital era starting back in what we call Web 1 early internet days in the 90s, you were at arguably one of the most important media companies in the world at that point in history, CNN, and you got kind of the news equivalent of what I got at the NFL, which was, okay, there's the commercial internet, Mosaic browser introduced in 93, commercial websites, typically 94, 95. What do we do now, CNN? NFL, et cetera. So you were there at the beginning. Let, let's talk Let's talk about some thoughts of how this all started and then kind of working our way into the 2000s, into social media. Cool. Sounds like a plan. All right. So let's start with that. Like, when did you first realize, if you can remember this, because it's a while back, like, when did you kind of have an aha moment that this would really transform the media business? Because I don't think it was evident to everybody at the same time back then, at least as I recall. You know, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think, you know, I remember vividly, I was working in CNN's PR department. I was hired to do PR for CNN Sports. And for those that don't remember, CNN and ESPN used to be like real competitors in the sports news world. Um, CNN had a show called Sports Tonight every night at 11 o'clock um, right. with Nick, Nick Charles and Fred Hickman. Uh yeah. And CNNSI.com. Wasn't that the URL? CNNSI.com. Well, that was, so we'll get there. So okay, that, sorry. That comes later. <laughs> um, and so when I started working at CNN, actually, I mean, this really dates me, but when I started working at Turner, I was an intern after attending the University of Georgia and we didn't have email. So like, you know, my career started, you would walk uh, or fax uh, memos across the building when you wanted to talk to people. So um I remember I was working in CNN's PR department. I was the low man on the totem pole um, working on sports. And 
the guy who started CNN.com or was starting CNN.com and just, you know, nobody knew what CNN.com was or what it meant. Um, at the time, we called it CNN Interactive, um, showed up in the PR department and was looking for someone to help uh, support the launch of CNN.com and started at the top with the head of the department. And nobody wanted to work on it because we were a TV network. And why would anybody want to work on anything other than television? Uh, so it got down to me. And for two reasons. One, I was the bottom of the food chain. And so I didn't have a choice. So I had to work on it. But two, it sounded cool. It sounded interesting. It sounded new. Um, always trying to learn about new things. And so I wound up in the, um, you know, the executive producer of CNN.com's office and writing a press release for, and it still exists somewhere on the web. I remember the date. It was August 30th, 1994. Um, the writing is quite cringe. It was a long, it was very early in my career. We got to check but, the way back machine, <laughs> internetarchive.org if you're curious. It's been shared with me before. Um, but, uh, you know, wrote the press release for the launch of CNN.com and I think to your point, like nobody really knew what it was, like what it was going to be. But at the same time, something about it felt transformational. And it's hard to put your finger on it, what right. it was. But this idea of moving from a linear television network where you watch what comes at you to being able to look at, at the time, like tens of stories, right? Very different world. Right. Um, tens of text stories uh, and being able to choose what you wanted to read. Um, it just felt like it was going to be transformational for the media industry. I mean, obviously, no idea to the extent that it, that it has turned out to be. And obviously, the disruption that we're in the midst of today was, to, at least for me, unpredictable. But again, there was just something about it that felt unique and, again, transformational. Yeah. So then you you rolled through the 90s developing that business. You got more involved specifically on the digital side, as I understand it, right? Um, oh. Yeah. And then, but then, but then we started to get into the world of legit user generated content, the beginning of web two with the launch of Wikipedia, blogging, et cetera, that world before the big social platforms hit. It's a really interesting time. And I remember there was a phrase that I don't know when it was coined, but citizen journalism where we'd actually, hey, there are a lot of, there are hundreds and hundreds of great CNN reporters around the world, but let's hear from regular people. <laughs> there are millions. Like, do and you remember that CNN... moment? Like, what did you think of that when 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 that started to change? Well, CNN was a, was a real pioneer in that area. Right. Right. They had a, a, a program called iReport. So yes. basically, to your point, there are, you know, at the time there was 3,000 CNN journalists around the world. But the idea was, is, you know, there are, you know, at the time, we're two and a half, three billion people, and so like let's 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 let everybody report for us. You know, it's interesting because there's and it's probably the still arguments that happen in newsrooms today. There is a real argument, you know, between the what we would refer to as the capital J journalists, like the very serious, like nobody can do this except people who got journalism degrees from top journalism schools, versus why wouldn't we take content from breaking news as it happens from people that are right. on the scene. And there was a real tension at the time. Um, obviously, that's kind of, I guess, in a lot of ways, that tension has really kind of continued. Um, but at the time, you know, one, it felt threatening to the capital J journalists. But also, I think there was a real and legitimate question about the legitimacy of the news that was gathered. And clearly, it was before AI and where you could kind of create news from scratch. So it wasn't nearly as fraught then as it is today, but 
how do you know that this person's really on the scene of this plane crash? Or how do you know that this interview was real and this is really the mayor of whatever town mm -hmm. was in the news? So there was a lot of tension, but at the time I give credit to CNN for being a very innovative organization. Um, and they were very open to, at least the decision makers, um, were very open to kind of opening up news gathering to the world. And that was right. even before, you know, we had cameras in our pockets. Right. So you actually yeah. had to go out of your way to take pictures or, you know, write an eyewitness report. Right. And also happening around the time where the notion of opinionating became more dominant in the new cable news business, partly as it became more competitive with the rise of Fox News and even CNN's Crossfire, which is one of the first major debates show, unless you go way back to the McLaughlin group. Uh, which I could remember. You know, that might from, even be predating me. That's pre-digital. Uh, <laughs> that was a very popular show, but it was it was not th these were these were journalists who were debating points in, in a television format, as opposed to just reporting the straight news. And and when that the world of user generated content started to explode, it's interesting that you saw more of that effectively on cable news too, where there were lots of commentators who were not trained capital J journalists. They just happened to be interesting speakers who liked to mix things up, which helped the ratings, which Good. developed more pontificators and stuff like that. Well, it's at really the end of the day, I think, you know, people tend to forget that news is a business for better right. and for worse. Right. And so to your point, I mean, you're spot on is that that drove ratings. Now the question is, did that make a more informed citizenry? You could certainly argue on both sides of that, but it, it was about ratings. It was about the business. And so, you know, we were learning about what people would tune in for. Mm -hmm. So did you actually, looking back on it, it's now 20 years ago that Facebook was launched, 2004, being in the, in the career, uh, living through the career you had over the, the, what, 10 years at CNN by that point, did you... Did it occur, at what point did it occur to you that maybe a thing like Facebook or then shortly thereafter the launch of YouTube and Twitter the next two years could actually be a big competitor? The category of social media could be a big competitor to the mainstream media business. Did, did that actually occur to you as another aha, like your, your aughts version of an aha moment like you, you had know, in the it, 90s? It really didn't. Um, I always felt like Facebook uh, specifically because it was, you know, pre-Twitter. I feel like Facebook, we all, I always saw it personally as an amplifier. And it was a great way for us to have our content get to more people and get to different people. So the, you know, the, the age of an average television news viewer at the time, I think was 73 years old. Um, and so obviously it was quite old. And so one of the things that I was charged with was making our brand relevant to younger audi younger audiences, more diverse audiences, um, broader audiences. And so I saw Facebook as a way that we could be relevant to a new generation of news consumers. And to right. be clear, I didn't call them news viewers because at the time, you know, CNN.com had really taken off on its own um, with millions and millions of unique users every day on the site. And so, you know, we felt like that was a great way for us to amplify the content that we created on CNN.com and through other CNN's digital services to reach and engage new audiences. Um, yeah. and, and I don't think there was, you know, I, not even think, I know that there was never, at least as far as I know, an intent 
at, at Facebook to become a real competitor of the news industry. I think, you know, what it really comes down to is time, right? Media is a zero sum game. So if you are consuming more media, it comes from another part of your media diet. So I think that's where things really started to become more competitive. It's just for attention. Yeah. And I would add, Andy, that another thing, another development actually played a, played a role in that. I just happened to mention this in my class the other day as we were talking about related point, which was the launch of Newsfeed, which will be, you know, the his, history will show that, that was one of the big moments that changed media. And I believe that was a couple of years after the launch, maybe 2006. The idea that I'm not just seeing what I'm going to see from my friends and contacts, connections. I'm actually going to see stuff in a different way. And then, of course, news companies and entertainment companies infiltrated that, and it became a much broader mosaic of content, which then led to the algorithms and things like that. Um, well, well, to your point, yeah, so I think, think you, like- but do, do you think that was a factor? Like, basically, they and then the other social media companies that followed figured out a way to, for lack of a better phrase, game the system to create more time spent on their platforms through the advancement of the news feeds and the like? I mean, clearly algorithmic ranking was the game changer. And um, it, it really goes back to what we were talking about earlier in that news is a business, social media is a business. And so what Facebook was able to very clearly see in its data was that they ranked the feed for content that they thought would be more engaging to people people would spend more time, right? And that, that's obvious. And so um, that's why it, clearly there were externalities that came from that, that might've been a net negative for the world, but at the time it was seen as, as, a, as a way to, as an engagement lever. Right, right, right. And so there was that moment in time where you, you took the plunge into new media from the legacy media of CNN and you actually went to Facebook. Can you talk about that? Like what, what your thought process was of, of making such a, a big move? Sure. So, um, you know, really started in, I think, 2007, early 2008 was when the um, uh, the 2008 election kicked off in earnest. And I, in my role of trying to reach new audiences, really set a goal for myself to partner with Facebook on the election coverage. So, you know, spent a bunch of time on the phone trying to figure out who the right person to talk to was at Facebook and eventually found someone that knew the right person um, and tried to forge an election partnership with them. What they had done, they had already been kind of wrapped up in some deals. And so we couldn't do a general election partnership. But after the general election, after Obama was inaugurated, we started to plan um, and we realized we wanted to work together and there was a lot of opportunity um, and we got along really well. We started to plan an inauguration partnership between Facebook and um, CNN. And what we were working toward was the inauguration, as it always is, was on a Monday during the day on a work day. Mm-hmm. You know, the inauguration of Obama, in a lot of ways, was going to be a watershed moment for like numerous reasons. And so what we did was we came up with uh, an idea. And this was our you know product people at CNN and the engineers at Facebook came up with the idea to marry the CNN.com video player and the Facebook status update. And we created one product so you could watch the inauguration and simultaneously update your status. Um, wow. We we thought it was a great idea. Um, I must say a lot of, lot of friction to get that over the line, 
But when it happened, it was absolutely mind-boggling to see how successful it was. If I remember correctly, and again, this is 2008 or 2009, it was January 2009, we had 24 million concurrent people watching the inauguration on CNN.com with the Facebook video player. So at the, you know, at the time, and I actually think that that record, that was the record for live streams and that held for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it was a great partnership. We did a lot more. And so in 2010, when Facebook was building a media partnerships team, uh, they reached out to me and said, are you interested in joining? And I said, yes. Uh, I, I admitted I'd been angling for that job for two years. And so myself and a colleague, we were the first two people from the media industry that joined Facebook. Uh, so yeah, so it was something wow, I that's crazy. absolutely had been angling for. And, you know, so it didn't take me long when the opportunity came up to, to jump at it. Yeah. So then two or three billion people later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, at the time. So it was, I mean, what you witness is really unbelievable because they were not that big at that point, obviously. And well, what funny you say that in the, in the 10 and the teens was, was extraordinary. I mean, no one would have predicted the scale they would have reached and you were there. Well, at the time, I mean, you know, you say it wasn't that big. We had 500 million people. So it was, okay. it was pretty big. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot but, bigger than the television household universe or the cable. But nobody expects, I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody expected the kind of growth one on users, but two, I don't, the, the, the growth of the business was unpredictable. Uh, right. At least for me, I had no idea the scale that the business could achieve. Yeah. What did you, now that you're working in sports proper with Serie A, what did you learn? And I know you didn't, you, did you do some work with the sports organizations or were you just focused specifically on news? Yeah, well, so when I worked, you mentioned CNN Sports Illustrated. So at CNN Sports No, no, I meant, at, I'm sorry, at Facebook when you were in that role. Yeah, so I did. So every okay. one of my jobs touched sports in some way, I mean, okay. less so when I discreetly worked on news partnerships. But at the beginning, ESPN was one of my top partners. Oh, wow. Okay. At, the, at the end, my job was working with big media companies around the world. And sports rights being their most valuable asset was a common uh, or consistent topic of our conversations. What did you learn being on that side of the ledger about sports and sports fandom that really stuck with you as you now transition to the other side of the ledger of being at a property? So less about sports fandom. I think what I really came to understand is the value of sports content. And that's helps me where I am today. Yeah. So, you know, where news companies, news is a commodity. So the story, the latest news story, there's literally thousands of versions of that same story written in different ways. Mm -hmm. And those are ubiquitous and is very much commodity content. And that's one of the things in Newsfeed that we learned is that whether it be Yahoo or the New York Times or people were going to read the story no matter the source, again, for better and for worse, but only one entity owned rights to each league. And so one the value of that to Facebook was significant, but more importantly, the value of that to the rights holder because of the immense cost of sports content. That that was in a lot of ways, the hardest content for us to get on platform because it was expensive. And so, you know, we, part of my job was to convince rights holders broadly, not just sports right holders, whether it be a, a reality TV show 
or a documentary or whatever mm -hmm. it is to put their content on Facebook and there was value in that. Right. Basically, everybody did it without thinking about it because of the promotional value and the brand value, et cetera. And sports entities were always, whether it be rights holders or the leagues themselves, they were always the exception because they understandably and rightly weren't going to give away their content to a platform that provided minimal direct value. Now, I could argue, and my job was to argue, the indirect value. But at the end of the day, they were, you know, we paid a billion dollars for this property and we have to recoup and we have, so we can't give it, give it away to you. We won't give it away to you without you helping re demonstrate how you re help us recoup that value. Yeah. And, and the, and the prize product, of course, in the mix was their video, the highlights, which were protected quite a bit in the early days of social. And then you saw different approaches taken by different leagues as the decade unfolded. So for example, Adam Silver has been quoted as saying he thought of highlights as part of marketing for the NBA. But you also know, and I'm sure you lived through this, some of the other leagues were way more conservative with the distribution of highlights. How did, how did you um, address kind of the different parts of the content that they had? So like the, the obviously there's Facebook Live and live video, that's say the, the high end. And then there were your game clips sometimes close to real time, especially in places uh, in other social media accounts, uh, businesses like Instagram and, or I should say Twitter and uh, YouTube and things like that. How did you actually address the, um, the media mix? Like what you were looking for them to do? Were you following the lead from Zuckerberg and management of what was working or were you listening to them and telling the management of Facebook, this is what they want to do? Um, so that that was literally my job was doing both, okay. right? Okay. So product would create product. You know, they would create different uh, different products, and our job was to pitch them to media companies. And then our job on the other end was to understand for those media companies what worked for those products and try and help our product team evolve the product in a way that's going to work for our partners so that we could get more content. So that was exactly my job was to negotiate. Okay. The relationships and I had to straddle both sides. I'm right. Sure. So, so you must media. you must have been doing some tap dancing. That's not an easy assignment. <laughs> it was fun, uh, especially you know as as each as each type side of the uh, of the of the coin got more and more powerful uh, while you were there. Facebook just getting massive scale, and then sports leagues just getting more power in the age of streaming. Obviously, but, media but rights. The good part about it was is I had leverage, and I had leverage on both sides. So our product team wanted the content. So if they wanted the content, I I had leverage to get them to build the features uh, that would help get the content. And our partners wanted to be on platform, but they needed to do un do it under terms that made sense for their businesses. So in a lot of ways, I kind of held all the leverage. Now, honestly, we were I was only semi successful with both. So our product team was only going to build what was good for Facebook. And our content providers and our partners were only going to put on platform what was good for their businesses. So really what we wound up doing was working with the partners that were the most motivated to work with us. So there were certain partners that we didn't, not that we didn't talk to, like, you know, we didn't like them, we didn't talk to them, but we knew they weren't going to work with us until we reached a certain threshold. So we would, invest, and this is across, this is not just sports, this is across all the different uh, types of content providers. 
And so we worked with the ones that were motivated and were interested in what we had to offer while we negotiated internally to try and build the products that ultimately were going to get more. And Facebook had to make strategic decisions on what compromises they were willing to make and what that content was worth to them. Yeah. So Andy, as you're talking, I'm thinking this deep well of knowledge and experience that you have from Facebook and solving those problems that you just described must be quite germane to your remit at Seria, where I know brand development and audience development are two, you know, two of the big pillars of the agenda. So has has it been easier for you to attack the world of uh, of me- social media because of all that knowledge? I mean, do you feel like you you kind of understand what best practices are and how to do this better than, let's say, someone who hadn't worked on that side of the business? I th- less on the social media side, I think just more broadly, I've just been lucky to have work across so many different types of media that, so my partners was every was everyone from established media like the NFL and the New York Times, the ESPN, to BuzzFeed during their heyday. And I, you know, my first meeting with BuzzFeed was, there was literally four people that worked in the company. Uh, and it was Jonah Peretti and his, you know, l- little laboratory trying to figure out how to reverse engineer the internet, which he actually did for a period of time. So I think it's the understanding the, the diversity of, of media businesses out there and how they can approach things like distribution and audience development and brand development and all the things we need to do here at Seria, approaching it both as a startup, but also as a very established business, because we're both of those things. So I think like having been able to engage with basically every size and scale of media company has helped me understand a little bit how to drive success here for Syria in the US. Yeah. Can you give some examples? I know you've only been there relatively briefly earlier this year, or I'm sorry, in 23, you started. The New York office opened, I believe, in 22. May 22. I know you've been working feverishly to advance the agenda. Could you just give a couple of examples of things that you're working or have done or are planning to do? Sure. So a, a couple a couple examples that I that I that I'm proud of. One is our um, Calcio Weekly newsletter, which you can subscribe at calcioweekly.com. So uh, I was well, I mean one of my hypotheses starting the job that if you were an American fan interested in Serie A, it's hard, not hard, but there's no natural place to find news. And so I knew that if we could push content to people, it'd be just we'd have a better chance of starting to develop a loyal audience. So we launched this email newsletter. It's actually kind of a funny story. Um, the Total Soccer Show is a podcast that I listen to every single every single week, many times a week. It's one of my favorites. Um, Ryan Bailey, one of the hosts, was living in Rome. He's British, but he was living in Rome. His wife uh, got a job there, and he can do his job from anywhere. And so as soon as I got the job, one of my first uh, trips was to go to the Copa Italia in Rome. So I reached out to Ryan because I knew that he was a clever writer and I really liked his take on soccer. I knew he understood Italian football. And so we had dinner in Rome and I pitched him this idea and he liked it. Um, And he said he'd work on it with me. Um, I talking about the evolution of the media business. I am a big fan of the Axios suite of newsletters. Mm -hmm. So basically I went, I said to Ryan, there's these things called Axios. You should subscribe to them. And that's what we want to do. So we want to give people 
a really quick digest of what's going on. So for those that don't know, calcio um, is Italian football. That's the word in, in Italian for football, um, specific to Italy. And so we, um, uh, so to give people just a, a quick primer every week on what's interesting happening around the league. So that's that's one example. Um, that's going really really well for us. I'm really proud of the results. We have a lot a lot a lot of scale to earn, mm-hmm. but the product is is I have to say I don't write it, so I can say this is excellent, and mm-hmm. and I, I feel like we've got a big opportunity there. The second one is starting to create more repeatable franchises for social. So we we did highlights and news, just generally like what you would expect from a league. But what we started to do is produce more. Um, uh, I would call it basically shows for social. So we have a show called Weekend Calcio. Um, it comes out every Monday evening or Tuesday, but it's not highlights because we assume that everybody's already found the highlights of the league if they're interested. What we really try and do is give people the narratives that happened over the weekend. So so a, a good example is a couple of weeks ago, I'm not sure if the number is five or six, but there were, we'll say it was six, Six missed penalty kicks over the course of the weekend, which is a record hadn't happened in 30 years. So like what are the interesting narratives that we can pull out of the weekend and share with people so they become interested in this crazy version of football that they play in Italy? That's amazing. Um, It's funny you talk about the importance of newsletters. As I often say in my digital media class at Columbia, which we'll talk about in a second, the Columbia Sports Management Program. It's maybe the least sexy digital media product, but it's probably one of the most important for the, well, reasons, the only, some of the reasons you cited. Yeah. Well, it's the only way that you own the customer. And exactly. going back to Facebook days, there was a lot of times I had to go to my partners and say, you know what? I know you have a million likes in your page and only 5,000 people saw your last post. That's a decision that's been made at the company. There's nothing you can do about that. Mm-hmm. And that was a hard conversation. Right. And I dreaded those conversations, but they were- You mean because your organic growth had declined? I mean, organic, we, organic reach. I meant organic reach, sorry. Yeah, we made a decision that that content wasn't valuable to people and we were going right. to dial it down. Yeah. And so newsletters are a way that you own that customer relationship and you can start to gather first party data, which is something we need to start doing here. And so, yeah, you're right. Newsletters, newsletters are so unsexy that it was a real uphill battle for me to get people to buy into that in Italy. And I was new and they're like, this American guy wants to do a newsletter. And really? it, right. it, what, it, what a pro- progressive thinker. He's going back old school digital marketing. And in Italy, every, nobody uses email. They use, they use WhatsApp and email is basically where you get your, your spam. And right. so everybody thought I was crazy but I wouldn't let it go because I really believed in the concept. And now everybody loves Calcio Weekly. So. Well, also, I, I would I would have walked in with exhibits A through Z from the pro sports business because they all do newsletters. And there's a reason they right. all do newsletters. But, but I'll say, Tom, and I think it's really important. <clears throat> most newsletters that I've seen in the sports business are basically marketing. And it's a graphic. And it's like, win this helmet or... You know, what I really set out to do. Buy a ticket to an event. Yeah. Or tune in tonight. Yeah. And when I was very deliberate and purposeful in developing Calcio Weekly was it's it's a content newsletter. It is marketing, It's but it's content marketing exactly. because I needed to give people the basics of this league and why how we're different. And so it was a deliberate choice to make it much look more, look and feel much more like a content email than a marketing email. Right. 
That's a really good point and and something I'm uh, attuned to. I think most of us consumers are when you, when you make that decision to put in your email, you wonder what you're getting. And if I see, which it's usually quite obvious, that it's overly promotional, I unsubscribe. If they sprinkle in good content, different story. And then you realize, oh no, this is a really convenient way of getting good content. So I, I think there's a it's a real art and science, actually, uh, email uh, marketing. So it's interesting that you're doing that. Well, and I think to your point, our unsubscribe yeah. rate is nearly zero and our open rate is 50%. That's that's outstanding. Yeah. Um, are you able to share the number that that you have now? Is that or is it would you keep that private? We have to, we have to keep that private for now. Okay. I, will, I will say it's not massive, but right. it's uh, I'm happy with the engagement. And so I, it's just we need to figure out what our marketing levers are. Right. And it's also interesting. It's an example of companies, in my opinion, needing to ask the proverbial ask for the order. So, for example, Bleacher Report has always been quite aggressive. Get our newsletter on its homepage. Other, you may know from just being a fan, other places you have to seek out the newsletter. It's not as obvious. If I were running a business, I, I would be very aggressive with the email newsletter it doesn't have to be obnoxious, but it's about the you know the the ins and outs of how you do navigation and what kind of promotional stuff you do in the different properties, your owned properties, or even how you use social media. I would say, yeah. Um, Andy, let's talk a little bit about one of the partnerships that got a little uh, press in I think the fall when it started, and that's the partnership with Columbia and the Columbia uh, Sports Management Program, Here Scott Rosner. <laughs> so uh, talk about the impetus for that and what, what your uh, thinking is around that deal. I mean, obviously, I don't have to tell you, Columbia is one of the best universities in the world. We were proud to associate with it. They've done a lot of partnerships with top tier leagues and clubs, and so we were honored to be part of that group. Um, I met Scott and. It was a quiet Friday afternoon. We got along great. We spent about three hours in my office chatting. Uh, and what was really intriguing to me, you know, we are a startup. We have four people that work in the office and we don't have deep pockets. So the opportunity to work with incredibly talented and smart and in a lot of cases experienced students and their professors to help us think strategically about this business and where to go was just an incredible opportunity. And I've been really impressed at the energy that the classes have brought to the projects. Uh, I was up at Columbia a few weeks ago. Um, first of all, what a beautiful campus. I forgot. Oh, that's great. Uh, I yeah. went to school at a beautiful campus and I hadn't been there in a long time. You forget what. Well, like, considering it's feet off of Broadway and <laughs> Amsterdam Avenue, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, but I spent some uh, an hour, hour and a half talking to a class and was just really impressed one at the level of engagement, just the, the kids were leaning in. Uh, and two, just the smarts of the questions and how enthusiastic and motivated they are to help us think about this business. So I'm really excited to continue to work and you know figure out what comes of it. Because, you know, quite frankly, I don't have the budget. I can't go out and hire a traditional management consultant. So right. I'm putting all of my energy, not all of my energy, but this is a major investment for me personally. Right to have some outside thinkers to help me think about like how to bring this this business to the next level here in the US and across North America. And Andy, is it mainly in the form of projects or are there actual classes? I mean, what what, how, what does it look like in terms of how it, it actually manifests? So my understanding is there's a project, there's a class whose sole project is to work on Legacy Yacht. So okay. 
that's incredible to me. And it's, okay. you know, again, and you, and you have a say in the syllabus and, and the, you know, the kind of the strategy of the class. Well, ultimately I gave them a, a, a brain dump of everything that I okay. know about the league and everything we've been doing to date. And I'm looking forward to them coming back to me with a plan on, uh, and collaboratively as right. similar as you would work with any consultant, they're not going to go away for three months and come back and give me a plan. The expectation, and I've been in touch with Saab, the professor, very regularly uh, to help think about, you know, how we over time develop a plan. Right. One of the stories I read in preparing for this convo was, uh, it was attributed to Reuters, where I think one of the officials from Italy said that one of the, one of the impetuses for opening offices in, I believe, Abu Dhabi, New York, and London was to just, fig- just, just New York and Abu Dhabi so far, but there is that in the plans of London. I thought that was mentioned uh, in the article. Not okay. not set in stone. Whatever, but could be Asia. We're, we're we're kind of weighing all the different options now. Ba- basically, um, setting up the league to greatly increase its broadcast rights deals by the end of the decade. I don't know if that's an accurate uh, description of what I read. But that's I mean, I say generally surprise. every league, every league. I, I was going to say, that's kind of like yeah. what everybody's trying to do right now. Yeah. But I'm, I'm just curious, and I know you can't say too much and you're new at it, but you see what's going on in the business right now where different properties are placing their bets. In certain cases, like MLS took its pile of chips and put them all on Apple or and vice, well, maybe not vice versa, but MLS, all Apple. You, we have that happening. You have uh, really interesting development with WWE moving its key show onto Netflix Raw, and a, and a deal that surprised a lot of people a few weeks ago. You've got this blockbuster announcement. No pun intended, by the way, since they're a defunct, mostly defunct company. Uh, but <laughs> announced from from Disney, Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Fox about this super sports streaming business that allegedly will launch later in the year. How much do you need to factor in that macro issue in your thinking about how you do the work in the U.S.? It's, it's a great question. I think that what I really want to do is I, I want to execute, obviously, thinking, thinking long-term, but we've got a real task ahead of us today, right? So this league... In the U.S., and as the executives will say, like went to sleep for 15 or 20 years. So for those that don't know, in the 90s, Serie A was where the Premier League is today, uh, but didn't. By, what def- but just to be clear, by what definition or, or what metrics? Or, by, how, by the metric of revenue, by the metric of uh, oh, really? okay. on the pitch in, mm-hmm. in every way, uh, this was the top league in the world. Best players in the world, Italy, when, you know, competing and winning World Cups. Uh, so, you know, Italy and Calcio and Serie A was the, the top league and the top football country in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we were on Rye, which is the public broadcaster and has international, but we were on Rye International here in the States, only in Italian, not an awesome way to develop an audience and keep an audience. Um, and so we're really starting in a lot of ways. We, you know, we've been on ESPN since then and now currently CBS Paramount Plus. Um, but that's a lot of catching up to do. So what I'm really trying to think about is how can I develop my business basically from square one here 
again, I need to think long-term, but you can't think long-term until you're executing successfully short-term. Yeah. And kind of like a lot of top of funnel work, so to speak, from marketing. 100%. And I think, you know, to your point, all the things that you just said, the changes in the media industry, five years ago, to some extent, people would have guessed, but a lot of it, you have no idea where this is going, right? Right. Cord cutting has happened much faster than anybody dreamed Mm -hmm. of, right? And arguably, this new consortium of media companies is going to not slow cord cutting, it's going to increase cord cutting. So who would have expected these companies to kind of hasten the demise of their traditional businesses? So I think it would be a little bit crazy for me to plan 10 years out when more importantly, I need to execute today, thinking obviously about things that will help build value over that 10 year horizon. But like, I need to think about my business today and over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. Yeah. And it does seem as though international soccer businesses are in a good position for where this is all going, because we now know that the big tech players have repeatedly said, you've heard this a lot from Apple in recent, even recent months, they're interested in global rights. If they, if they want to get into it, they want to go big. And soccer, of course, football, global football, is the most globally successful sport of them all by a wide, wide margin with pockets of fans all literally all over the world. So it seems to me they're perhaps the best candidates for these global distribution opportunities that big tech can provide compared to called small tech or, or old media or something like that. So it feels like there's a good future ahead once this gets sorted out. But I think, yeah, 100%. But also, I think the media companies are also trying to figure out how to be more more global as well. So I think everyone's starting to play on the other's turf. Yeah, yeah but they their challenge, I, I would argue that their challenges are much more significant for, um, for different reasons because they have more limited revenue streams. I mean, you know, all the economics. They have one business. Much right. more market caps, et cetera. Right. I mean, the tech companies, this is a hobby, even at billion, multi-billion dollar yeah. acquisition fees. It's still a hobby, which is well, pretty- well, it's it's a hobby that's getting quite serious because the other thing this coincides with is a huge foray by some of those big tech companies into the world of advertising. And I'm sure you've been reading all the stories about how enormous Amazon's advertising business, the growth of Apple's advertising business, and that's now actually providing some counterbalance to the duopoly of Meta and Google. And I'm sure you've seen the growth numbers of Amazon's business alone. It's stunning. It's and stunning. and so wow. say, well, what, what's, hmm, what is there about sports that kind of works for that? Oh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, like what, 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 what kind of content would be good for an advertising agenda? Hmm, sports kind of you know, built on advertising and sponsorship. Fair so, enough. Anyway, fun stuff. Let's wrap up with a couple of questions we ask uh, all of our guests. I gave you fair warning. Let's start with the question about your media habits vis-a-vis professional knowledge and staying current, staying up to date, staying smart. What are you you into these days? So fortunately for me, my my profession, both, you know, on the media side and the sports side is my passion. So I mean, sports, obviously, because a lot of people share that. But for whatever weird reason, I've been media obsessive my whole life. 
So I actually read media columns and media trades for fun. Yeah. Uh, so I'm lucky that it's my job. Um, top publications for me, there's, um, I would, it's not obscure, but it's certainly not mainstream. There's an email newsletter, going back to email newsletters, called Stratechery. Oh, that's, that's, my, that's my fave. Yeah, yeah. nice. Okay. So Ben Thompson is an incredibly smart analyst. Uh, I think he charges like 120 bucks a year. You get both the newsletter and the podcast. So I love Stratechery. Um, I spend a lot of time still following tech, mostly because I think it's really relevant to the sports world today. Mm -hmm. And to your point, probably more relevant to the sports world in the future. And plus, it's just really interesting to me. Right. Um, Like, I can't wait to watch my first match, um, whatever it is, in an Apple Vision Pro. I'm just curious what that experience, because I do think that will be the future. Um, So I spend a lot of time there. I'm a news and business news junkie. I read the financial, I subscribe to the Financial Times, um, subscribe to the New York Times. But I think podcasts are probably my most uh, uh, regular way to consume content because it's mm-hmm. I can do it multitasking. Right. I can do it while I'm doing dishes and doing the laundry right. and walking to and from work. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time using podcasts, but I still, I read a lot. Um, and then also unrelated to work, uh, but I love to read fiction uh, because it's just a nice diversion from thinking about, you know, soccer now is work for me, which I love, but it it changes how you watch matches. Uh, and so it's good to have that escape and uh, get some friction. Get some oh, fiction. I'm with you. I, I love reading fiction too. And I, I like, I end every day reading fiction before I lay down because um, reading, reading reality can be <laughs> bad for your sleep. <laughs> Absolutely. This is funny. To that point, it's funny. This is, I've decided my whole career, I've worked close to the news business or in the news business. And so since Bill Clinton was elected, that was the last election that I didn't professionally have to pay attention to. And so this is the first election that I don't professionally have to pay attention to. You picked a good one. (laughs) I have been enjoying looking at my podcast queue. And if I see the words Trump or Biden in the description, I just delete it. Yeah. Uh, Nice. There's plenty of time to pay attention. I'm not starting in February. I'm going to wait maybe till the conventions. Yeah, no, that's good. And it's it's amazing how deep and wide the world of podcasting has become just on the business front. Forget about special interests Uh, for sport. If you want to follow sports business right now, you could pretty much get everything you need on about four or five podcasts. And then and I was late tech as a to, category, you know, it's even better. Totally. And I was late to 1.5 speed. So that's as high as I'll go. But I just learned about that the last like six months ago. And I was like, oh my God, I can. Although when I listen to Ben Thompson, I usually have to go 0.5 because sometimes he's so <laughs> dense in a good way. Uh, I always joke that when I read Ben's essays, I um, I usually have to read them two or three times and yeah. reread certain paragraphs because he, there, he, there's so much going on in his analysis always. By the way, there's one other one that I, I mentioned. I don't know if you know about it. I just recently discovered it. I used to listen to his old Exponent podcast, which went away, I think, a year or two ago. The one he's on now that complements his writing is called Sharp Tech. I love Sharp Tech. Yeah, okay. I figured you knew about it. Uh, it's with yeah. Andrew Sharp, and, and they do a really good job. They're their episode last uh, a few days back uh, about Apple Vision Pro first impressions was quite good because they both bought the device a week ago from today when when it officially launched and they both had strong uh, opinions. Ben's wasn't as 
exuberant as his initial assessment was after the, the Worldwide Developers Conference launch last June, but it was really interesting because it's related to media, and I'm with you on that immersive media potential. It sounds like it's stunning. Yeah, um, okay. Great future. It's gonna be fun. Yeah, last question. Um, so you're involved with Columbia. You've had a really interesting career with some notable stops. You've hired a lot of people. What kind of career advice do you like to offer folks, particularly younger people getting their career going? So it's a, it's a it's 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 probably a, a harder question than it seems like because everybody's in such different circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> I would say, I think going back to when we, we already talked about it, the anecdote about having the opportunity to work on the launch of CNN.com in 1995, I would say like take any opportunity that is offered, offered to you and not meaning that like take any job that's offered to you. Mm -hmm. But I think the best thing that you can have is a diverse foundation of knowledge and experience to that will which will create optionality in the future. So, you know, when you're in an interview, being able to draw on a lot of different types of experience or being able to draw on a particular type of experience that is relevant to the job that you're talking about, I think is really useful. Um, I would also say similar to that is have a good diverse knowledge base, right? And I, you know, my job is in sports and media, but yet I still spend a lot of time following tech because I think that's, you know, skate where the puck is going, not where the puck mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Tom, like tech is going to be a big player in every single industry. And so having knowledge about that business, even though today it's not directly relevant to what I do, um, I think is, is also very useful. Um, yeah. So I think those are the two biggest things and then you know everybody says it and it's super corny but know your know yourself and do what you think is going to be best for you not what your parents want you to do or not what you think will mm -hmm. sound good uh, when you go to your reunions or look good on linkedin right. like if you have a passion for something whether it you know follow your passion not necessarily your pocketbook yeah yeah it's more sustainable Good, really good advice. And I, and I think, you know, for you and I are somewhat similar in that we were kind of in a right place, right time situation in the 90s when the world changed. And I think we both did something that I recommend to folks that I'm offering advice to, which is see if there's something going on around you that you can get in on fast and make it your business to learn more about it than other people. And it'll give you some opportunities. And that happened with you and you and I for internet obviously happened to you with uh, social media early on. And that usually puts you on a decent track because unless these things are fads, which they typically are not, then you you kind of have a head start compared to your peers. And even if there are fads, you're going to learn a lot from it still. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I guarantee all the people that worked in NFTs or crypto or and who knows, like those could still have a future. But certainly, you know, saw uh, a negative momentum, but they learned a lot from that. And, you know, of you course, have to learn yeah. as much from your mistakes as your successes. Yeah. And, I, and there's a, and there's something, an example happening around us right now with, with AI. And uh, we'll change things quite a bit. In, but, but to my in, point, like, yeah. if you're not interested in AI and that's not intellectually interesting to you, don't go do it because... Oh, I, I, yeah, it's 100%. Like, I, like you, I was fascinated by 
the early internet. Like I just, I remember because I was in charge of uh, print publishing at the NFL, meaning books, magazines, et cetera, you know, buying paper, printing deals, distribution, complete pain in the ass just from a business standpoint. And as soon as I got into the internet stuff and realized none of that was necessary, I'm like, I'm, I'm all in on this new thing. And um, it well, really changed my, my, my outlook. My first internet experience, I'm a, and I see your records, I'm a music nerd, and that's really my hobby. Um, and I'm glad I haven't made it my job because I, I can't compromise and my music isn't super popular. But um, <laughs> I remember getting Prodigy in 1992 yep. mm -hmm. because I could chat with my favorite band Pavement at the time. And I maybe <laughs> just put out their first record. Right. They were going to do a chat on Prodigy. I didn't know what it meant. And there was like Pavement and 10 other people talking to them about their music. And like, I couldn't believe the fact that through my computer that I could talk to my favorite band. Yeah. We at the end we did, I knew the people in Prodigy from my prior job at Ziff Davis and we were the first league to do a deal with them, and I remember the day they they did live on Monday Night Football like to promote Prodigy because remember the corporate owners let's see like you're probably one of the only people that know who the corporate owners were remember it's funny to think about it I don't can I get a hint can I get a life IBM Sears and CBS I think yeah wow. I would have gotten, I would have definitely not gotten that in a quiz. Here, like, yeah, it was really funny. Uh, I remember visiting their office in White Plains and actually using it for the first time where you took a mouse, you got the mouse and you could click on sports and scores and stuff would come up. Like how exciting. Anyway, Andy, um, thank you so much. Great convo. Really enjoyed it. Super fun chat. Thanks for the time. And a do you want to, do you want to promote, uh, tell folks where they might check out Serie A, all the American listeners? Yeah, so couchoweekly.com, subscribe to our newsletter. Tell me I'm wrong about it and what we can do better, please. Okay. Um, and then we have a Seria North America account at Seria underscore North America on Instagram. Okay. Um, and that's where we publish our weekend Calcio series okay. and also a lot of other great content. So you're leaning more on Instagram than, than the other platforms right now? Today, I'm just with a small team. Okay. That seems to be you know the, the biggest scaled opportunity. Anything on TikTok yet? We have a global TikTok channel. So I'm talking about things that are specific to the U.S. Yeah. audience. Okay. And awesome. the thing we also didn't mention um, is we have four, arguably the best American players playing in Serie A now. So we have Christian Pulisic and Timothy mm -hmm. Weah mm -hmm. playing at um, AC Milan. Oh, sorry. Christian Pulisic and Yunus Musa playing at AC Milan. Uh, and Weston McKinney and Timothy Weah playing at Juventus. So if you're interested in American soccer, Serie A is the place to watch it. Nice. And all you need is your Paramount Plus subscription, and you you'll go. be in. There you go. <laughs> so please uh, text me the password for Paramount Plus because I don't <laughs> have it, so I can start watching. Uh, anyway, Andy, uh, we wish you well in the job. Uh, what a great and interesting agenda it is. I think they got the right guy to do it based on your knowledge and experience. It seems like a great match, so I, I hope it goes well for you. I hope it goes well too. Thank you for and, your and good luck with the Columbia deal. Maybe we can overlap on on some of these uh, classes at some point. Um, we've been listening to Andy Mitchell, who is the CEO, managing director of Seria in the United States. And uh, if you want to reach out, you can probably find him somewhere on the socials or uh, LinkedIn. Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Thanks uh, especially to Mike in the background doing our production. Joe, hope you're having fun in Las Vegas. Same with you, Scott. 
We'll see everybody next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.